0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we uh, reflect upon it this morning together that you would feed us and that we would continue to grow in you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're three weeks into a new year. Um, Would you believe it? Uh, another new year and COVID still with us. Have you made a, a New Year's resolution? Um, some people like to do that. Other people think, that you know, it's the same as last year, survival. Uh, I don't tend to make New Year's resolutions. I don't know why. Maybe it is that I don't want to be disappointed too early in the year. Um, but it seems that people want to be better people? Do we want to change for the better? Um, Why? Uh, And what does it mean to be better? And how do we do it? Some people want to change because they want to feel better about themselves. Some people want to impress others. Some people sadly even think that they can impress God by their changes and they can make themselves better. Well, this prayer that we're going to consider this morning, I think, among other things, is about the dynamics of godly change. And Paul begins or prefaces this letter by saying, with this in mind, uh, what does Paul have in mind? What does he want us to have in mind? Well, it's what he has said in the previous verses of that chapter, which weren't read, but if you have your Bibles open, you can see it there. And basically, Paul is saying, because of what has already happened and because of what will happen in the future, with this in mind, this is what I want to pray for you. What has happened? Well, these Christians in Thessalonica have been converted They have begun to change. There's evidence of their growth in faith and their love for each other. These are signs that God is working in them and changing them. And what's more, they have shown that they can persevere when they are being persecuted and the world is being hard on them. And Paul says, that's great. Keep that in mind that you've already begun And also keep in mind that even though life is tough for you now, that you have a future that is glorious. And keep in mind eternity. That's Paul's basis for the prayer that he's about to pray. Eternity either with God or without God. And the basis of whether you will be with God or without God is not weighing up how many good things you do as opposed to how many bad things you do. It's simply whether you have received and believed the message of the gospel or whether you have disobeyed the gospel. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To disobey the gospel, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have heard the gospel that you've heard that Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father, that I'm the only way to bring forgiveness, that I'm the only way to bring new life, that I'm the only way that you can change to be the kind of person that you were created to be, and you say, no thanks. That is disobeying the gospel. And that is the basis upon which people will spend eternity without God. And Paul says, with this in mind, this is what I'm praying for you. And he begins, and I'm going to just talk about three points. There, there are outlines, but no, I, I don't want it, but there are outlines for everybody, but I don't think they were handed out. It doesn't matter. It's very simple. I'm going to talk about three things, worthiness, fruition, and glory. Um. So first of all, worthiness. We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that God might make you worthy of his calling. Well, the first thing to understand worthiness is to know that nobody is worthy, none of us. The first step in knowing it and being worthy is to know that you're not. The way that the Bible describes people in their natural state, that's all of us, is that we are sinners, that we are dead in our sin, that we are blind, that we are slaves to sin, that we're enemies of God and we're objects of wrath. That's us. That's everybody outside of Christ. Unworthy. One of the books that uh, Justine mentioned was Gentle and Lowly, and I know it's been mentioned before in church, but I just want to quote one very short quote from that. Ortland says this it is the most counterintuitive aspect of christianity that we are declared right with god not once we begin to get our act together but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will it's a wonderful aspect counterintuitive Of the gospel, something the world finds very, very difficult to accept and understand. It's all about being worthy, proving your worth, earning your way. And the sad thing is, people keep trying to do that. Whereas God says, No, I accept you as you are, I'll declare you're okay, then I'll make you worthy. Seems like a big emphasis today on school teaching. Well, sorry, I've got another example. Um, By the way, Deb, I I haven't taught kids for over 20 years and I still have dreams about not doing my program and not being on playground duty on time. So, best, best of luck for the future. There is a strategy that high school teachers often use called putting students on a contract. Not to be confused with taking a contract out on a student, (laughs) which you may be tempted to do if you're a teacher sometimes, but a contract works something like this. It's a misbehaving student. Uh, You want to make sure they do certain things or not do certain things, and so you put that on a contract, and that student needs to take that contract to every lesson, and at the end of every lesson, the teacher can tick yes, yes, They've done that. No, they haven't done that. No, they haven't done that. They've passed the lesson. They're okay. Um, And it's a way of trying to remind the students of how they behave and keeping track of them and monitoring their behaviour. I heard a story once by a, a teacher who told me that he had a student on a contract and the student came into the class and he said to him, bring your contract here. The kid said, I haven't even started yet. I haven't done anything wrong yet. He said, bring it here. And the student thought he was going to cross him out for everything before he started. And so he grudgingly went to the front of the room and gave him the contract and the teacher took it and ticked everything and said, now go and sit down and live up to it. That's a story of grace. And that's what God does. God doesn't wait until we get all the ticks. He ticks it all first and says, You are right. You're innocent. In my sight, you're perfect because of my son Jesus. Now let's work together and make that a reality. It's the wonderful thing about the gospel. And Paul says he wants wants God to make us worthy of his calling. If you are a Christian, it is because you have been called by God. Being called by God is not the same as being invited and sort of saying, here it is, take it or leave it. Being called by God means that you come to God. It's effective and it's unbreakable. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30, Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All in the past tense, even though glorification is still yet to come. It's unbreakable. If God called you, he justifies you. He declares you're okay. And Then he changes you and brings you to glorification to be like Jesus. Paul said, we pray that God might make you worthy. It is God who does the making of worthiness. We are empowered by God to be what we are already declared to be. It's the great truth of the gospel that we become what we already are in Christ. So growing in Christ, changing to be more like Jesus is realizing who we really are. It's becoming more and more our true selves and our identity is found in Christ, in nothing else. It's in Christ. And Paul goes on to say that God might make you worthy of his calling and by his power bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Now, I hope we saw that clearly, that it's our desires and our deeds. We are active participants. It's our desires and our deeds. But we've already seen that our natural desires and our natural promptings make us unworthy. But once we have been declared worthy by God, that we have been given a new nature, We now have the capacity to have new desires, desires for goodness. Now, the problem is is that we still have some of the old desires and some of the old promptings. They're mixed up. We have this new nature. We have a new heart that desires God and his goodness, and yet the old nature still hangs around, and we have mixed desires within us, and we have mixed promptings. We're prompted by a number of things. The reality is that we can choose those good things and we can choose those promptings by faith. And that's what Paul is praying, that those things might come to fruition in our life. Desires for goodness. Now, we could have a whole series of sermons on this word goodness. It's such a simple word, such a simple concept, but it's so profound. And in these days, it is so confusing. What does it mean to be good? Christians are now told that we are the bad guys. And someone's written a book called Being the Bad Guys. How to please Jesus when the world says you shouldn't. Great book. It's another one I recommend to you. Um, what does it mean to be good when things that used to be referred to as bad are now referred to as good and things that used to be thought of as good are now referred to as bad? What does it mean to be good? Because it seems that most people want to be thought of as being good. I'm a good person. When we have uh, someone who's in the public eye gets caught out in a uh, you know indefensible scandal, says but really, I'm not a bad person. We want to be thought of as being good. And everybody, every human being, Christian and non-Christian alike, have been made in the image of God, and so we're all capable of acts of goodness. And sometimes non-Christians seem to behave better than Christians. It's because they they too have been created in the image of God. But even those acts of goodness can be done in opposition to God where he is not acknowledged as the source of all goodness and the one who defines goodness and the one who is the end of goodness. It's not how many good things you do versus how many bad things you do, judging somebody, it's the direction of our hearts. They are either towards God or away from God, regardless of the inaction of good things or bad things. But Paul says your every desire for goodness And we need to define goodness. This is how I define goodness, godness. I think that's what the derivation of the word is. Goodness is godness. Our desire for goodness needs to be a desire to conform to the image of Jesus. We've been made in the image of God, and that image has been twisted, distorted, marred, mixed up, confused. And when we come back to God through Jesus, we say, I desire to be made more and more like Jesus. That's God's agenda for us, and our desire for Godness needs to be our agenda. And Paul says, every deed prompted by faith. What does it mean to have your deeds prompted by faith? Does it mean, I believe this is going to be right, I believe this is going to happen, I've got faith in it, therefore I'm going to do it? No. It's prompted by the faith in what Jesus has already done. I do this, not so I'll impress God, not so I'll earn brownie points, I do this... I'm doing this deed because it's going to please God, not so that I can improve my relationship with God, but I can live out my relationship with God because I already have it. It's prompted by faith. It's prompted by what God has already done. And what kind of things can be prompted by faith? Everything. Your day-to-day life. Everything you do can be done in thankfulness and in service and in glory to God. One of my favourite verses, Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. It doesn't have to be the big heroic spiritual things. It's whatever you do. That's deeds prompted by faith. And it's all God's work. We can try to change ourselves or we can cooperate with God in his agenda of change for us. It's by his power. And it's a mighty power. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. It's a very interesting uh, psalm, and I recommend you meditating on it. But it goes on to talk about just sort of, you know, going to bed early and just being a bit chilled, um, having kids all around you. It's, it's a very strange juxtaposition, sort of relaxing and having lots of kids around you and all this. But unless the Lord is doing it, you are going to be frenetic in trying to do it yourself. And it seems to me that if I was going to put a heading on that psalm, I'd put a heading like relaxed striving. Because, yeah, we're involved, we're getting stuck into it, but we're trusting the Lord to build a house. Relaxed striving. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. Why? Because God... God is watching, God is judging, God is counting up your goodness? No. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is already in you working for his will and his good purpose. He's there. He started. He's on the job. Now, we can get with the program and cooperate with him. Have you heard that expression, the Lord helps those who help themselves? Do you know where in the Bible that comes from? Nowhere. It's rubbish. Uh, The Lord doesn't wait for us to help ourselves before he begins to help us. That expression should be, those whom the Lord chooses to help, they can now help themselves. That's our situation. And finally, Paul says, we pray this, that you by God may be made worthy, that all these things may come to fruition, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. It's all about him. Sometimes we we see uh, a a self-focused person just talking about themselves all the time and wanting attention on themselves and sometimes someone will say to them, hey, hang on a minute, it's not all about you. Well, as far as God is concerned, it is all about him and he is the only one who can say it's all about me. But the interesting thing is, God is the most other-focused person as we see him in Jesus than anyone who ever lived. Sometimes our sinful heart can picture God as an egotistical person saying, hey, I want all the glory, all the glory to me. But that is not true. God doesn't need us to glorify him. He already has all the glory. We need to glorify God because he's glorious. And that's the reality. God doesn't need it. We need it. If we don't see Jesus as the flesh of God, as the most glorious person in the universe we are out of touch with reality. The most basic fundamental principle of reality is that God is glorious and worthy of all praise. So when we do things, we do it for God's glory if we have our hearts attuned to him. And Paul prays, that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified in you. Now we say that so quickly, glorified in me. Do we do we feel the weight of that? That the glory of Jesus is to be seen in you. That other people are to look at you, and see the glory of Jesus. It's a mighty prayer that prayer is praying. It's a mighty privilege that Jesus' glory will be displayed in us. And what's more, Paul says, and you in him. What does that mean? That we will be glorified in Jesus. As we glorify him and say it's all about you, take me out of the picture, God is wanting to glorify us in him. Jesus wants to share his glory with us, and that will be his great joy, to share his glory with us. And Paul concludes, according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's all about grace. The motivation for change, the object of our change The power for godly change is all about God's grace. What he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do, all about God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you might make us worthy of our calling. I pray that by your power you might bring to fruition our every desire for goodness and you might shape our desires. You might continue to reshape our heart and that you may cause every deed, whatever we do, to be prompted by who you are and what you've done. We pray that you might bring those to fruition And we pray that you might glorify the name of Jesus in us as individuals and as a community and that you might prepare us to be glorified in him. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.